Hello, everyone. Welcome back to another episode of Addendum. Today, we have Dr. Steve Pantelat, who is a palliative care doctor with us. So, doctor, could you explain to us what exactly is palliative care? Because often people perceive it or, well, mistake it with hospice care. So what is the difference between these two types of care? Sure. Well, first, I want to say thank you so much for inviting me and for your interest in the topic. It's really great to be with you this morning. Palliative care is really the kind of the universe of care that's focused on improving the quality of life for people with serious illness. Serious illnesses like cancer or heart disease, Parkinson's disease, ALS, chronic lung disease, and those sorts of serious illnesses. And palliative care is really focused on not necessarily treating the underlying illness itself, but really on trying to improve someone's quality of life by treating their symptoms like pain, shortness of breath, fatigue, nausea, helping them make really good decisions about the kinds of care that they want, and also providing support for them and their family members. So that's what palliative care is broadly. I always say it's medical care focused on improving quality of life for people with serious illness. Hospice is one way of providing palliative care. So hospice is a type of palliative care service. It's a service that's generally provided to people in the home. It has certain parameters. For example, it requires a physician to say that the patient has a six-month prognosis. That's not required in all palliative care, but it is required for hospice services the way it's organized in the United States. How would you say that palliative care then differentiates from household care provided by family or by like spiritual leaders? Because as far as I understand it, it's just supporting on reducing the pain, right? So why would some people choose to opt for palliative care over just having like their social circle support them during this time? So in palliative care, it really is medical care. So it's a medical team of nurses and doctors, social workers and chaplains um, who really bring that level of expertise to the care of, of the patient. So you're right that for people with serious illness, they also need support from their family and friends and from other caregivers at home to be, you know, to, to manage their health care and their lives more broadly. They may very well seek support from chaplains and from spiritual uh, leaders in their community. So those things are also really important. And the expertise, the medical expertise of palliative care teams, you know, the doctors who can prescribe medications for pain and shortness of breath, um, the social workers who can really help provide additional care at home and help deal with some of the stresses uh, that result from serious illness, and chaplains who aren't really religious leaders, don't bring a religious lens, but really bring a spiritual lens to understanding illness and understanding health and what serious illness means for somebody. So, you know, what does it mean for my relationships? What does it mean for my legacy? What does it mean for uh, the way I've lived my life? Uh, And really addressing spiritual issues that are not necessarily religious. And as far as I understand, palliative care has been a newer field in medicine. That's right. Yeah, it is a much newer field. You're right. It only became a recognized medical specialty by sort of the major boards in medicine in 2008. So it's really new. And yet if you look at 
palliative care as a philosophy of care, as an approach to care, it's really very ancient, right? It's one of the most ancient ones, which was to really provide comfort to people and to relieve their symptoms and help them feel better in the setting of serious illness. So if you take a long historical perspective, you know, in some ways it is what we did in medicine for thousands of years. So what kind of prompted this recognition of palliative care as a medical specialty, whereas before it was kind of like just integrated into all of the other fields? There was a recognition in the 70s, really, that uh, as medicine became more kind of technically advanced, technologically advanced, and as we had more treatments that we could provide to patients that really made a difference to their to their illnesses, that perhaps we were losing a little bit of the focus on the whole person and their experience of illness, that there was a lot of um, suffering that our treatments could not relieve. And yet, if we just focused on the treatments, we were kind of missing a whole part of the experience that people have, the experience of, of illness and the, and the worries and concerns that they have and the symptoms that go along with serious illness that really weren't being addressed by anyone. And so while we might assume that that's just part of what everybody should be doing, you know, each field in healthcare was really focused on their specific illness rather than necessarily taking a step back and saying, hey, let's think about the, the whole person. And so while it's true that that's possible that it could be done, I think there was a recognition that it could be done better and that the same kind of expertise we bring to treating heart failure or Parkinson's disease or diabetes, we could also bring uh, to helping people feel better. And that's really how palliative care began to grow. I think there was also a recognition that while we had a lot of treatments that were trying to cure illness and stave off disease, we weren't really that good about what happened when those treatments didn't work and people were approaching the end of life. And so we think about palliative care really as treatment for people throughout the course of a serious illness, sort of from from their diagnosis really until the end of life. And it's also an expertise on how to help people at the end of life and recognizing that that was really a very special time and that, in fact, people do die. Everybody dies. And that we should really focus on that experience as well and trying to make that experience as sort of peaceful and comfortable as as we can. And again, there's an expertise in knowing how to do that for the person who's dying and for their family members. I see. So could you provide an example maybe of how a palliative doctor or well, just the palliative team would work with like another specialist in a patient's experience? Sure. So one of my patients has what's called interstitial lung disease. So that's a chronic scarring of the lungs, for which there are some treatments, but no way to really prevent it from getting worse over time. And it leads to more and more scarring in the lungs. People develop shortness of breath, and ultimately they will die of this illness over the course of a few years. So it's a a serious illness. Um, And so the patients that I take care of with interstitial lung disease also have a lung specialist, typically a specialist in interstitial lung disease, because it's a pretty specialized area, who are working with them to try um, and provide treatments that help the interstitial lung disease, that might help other parts, other types of lung disease that might 
be there as well. And to really bring that focus and that expertise of what's the best possible way to treat their interstitial lung disease. Many of them also have a primary care physician because they might have other illnesses. They might have diabetes or high blood pressure, things like that, that also need treatment. Um, And so they might have a primary care doctor as well. And then they'll have a palliative care team. And some of the work that we would do would be um, to treat their shortness of breath. Um, They might be getting oxygen for their shortness of breath, but there are other treatments or other medications that are really helpful for shortness of breath that our team would prescribe. Often they have questions, you know, should I take this treatment? Should I not get that treatment? Should I enroll in this trial of another medication? And they have questions just about, you know, their medical care and what the future holds. And so we might talk to them about that as well. For example, one of my patients uh, with interstitial lung disease, when the COVID pandemic started, one of the issues that we were talking about had to do with coming to the hospital. So before the COVID pandemic, he thought, well, you know, if I got a pneumonia and I got really sick and I needed to be hospitalized, I would come to the hospital and I would like treatment for the pneumonia. But you may remember this, but early in the COVID pandemic, because of the spread of the illness, we weren't allowing visitors in the hospital because it was just too dangerous for everybody to have more people in the hospital. So we were limiting visitors. So we had to talk to my patient about it and then said, you know, here's the deal. You know, this is what's going on. And he said, well, you know, the most important thing to me, if I was approaching the end of life, would be to be with my family. And if you're telling me coming to the hospital means I won't be able to be with my family, I have to be alone, basically, and see them on, you know, on Zoom. Well, then I don't want to come to the hospital at all. And so we came up with a plan that said, and we documented that and we documented it on a form that would respect his wishes and thought about, well, what's the what's the plan for you to be able to stay at home if you developed a pneumonia? So those discussions were issues that we talked about in, as a palliative care team. So that's an example of something that we talked about. And at the same time, also making sure that his family felt well supported, you know, and we did this all um, by video, you know, because again, in at that point in the pandemic, people didn't want to come um, to the clinic. So we were on Zoom and he and his wife were on Zoom and then our nurse was at home and our social worker was at home and I was working from home. And so we had, you know, seven or eight screens on the Zoom to have this conversation together. So how would you say that COVID has changed palliative care? Because in case where another pandemic happens or for cases where it's like a super infectious disease, how do you think palliative care will likely respond now compared to before? All of my palliative care colleagues across the country stepped up to help care for people with, with COVID. So, you know, in our hospital, everybody with COVID who was in the intensive care unit received a a consultation from our team to see how we could be helpful in the setting of COVID, particularly early in the pandemic, before we knew a lot about it, before we had vaccines. You know, a lot of people were dying. I mean, they were dying in circumstances, again, where they were isolated from their families. You know, our team was the first team to bring iPads into the hospital um, so that patients could communicate with their loved ones when they're when we were really restricting visitation. It's interesting. It's something we had been doing using video in the clinic for a long time, um, but hadn't really used it in the hospital very much. And it suddenly became like one of these obvious things that we should have done. Like, why didn't we think of this before? 
to use a video because even when people were allowed to visit, patients often had family members all over the country and all over the world. And we just didn't really think that much about how to include them. The pandemic created, you know, this need to get families connected to their loved ones in the hospital. And so we worked with a local foundation that donated a bunch of iPads to us on on a stand with wheels, and we would just wheel it around the hospital and bring it to the patient so they could visit with their family members. And they would have family members from all over the world who are able to watch and speak with them and sing to them. It was really beautiful and created a, a good opportunity in a really terrible, terrible situation. When our colleagues in New York City were overwhelmed, you'll remember early in the pandemic, New York City was really just overwhelmed with covid um, and our palliative care colleagues went from getting about four requests for palliative care a day to 25. And there were many conversations that had to be had in the emergency department. What did what kind of care did people want? Did they want to be on a ventilator? Did they not want to be on a ventilator? Did they want to be separate from their families or not? And so we set up a system um, whereby we were able to volunteer uh, to help our colleagues by having a lot of these conversations with their patients. And so we were in San Francisco, but we were talking with their patients generally by phone. A bunch of our colleagues from UCSF actually went to New York to help provide care in the intensive care unit and in the hospital. The palliative care could be done by phone, so we didn't have to travel, but we were able to help them out that way. So there was a lot, a lot of need for palliative care in the pandemic, and that is still the case. Yeah, definitely. So what does a typical day look for you during the pandemic? And how does it compare to like a previous normal day? Well, if you came, you know, if you were rounding with our team in the hospital two years ago or three years ago, um, and today, the biggest difference you'd notice is that everybody's wearing a mask. Everybody's um, got a mask on. Many people have goggles on. Um, so that would be, I think, the biggest difference that you would notice. And a lot of our meetings and rounds are held by video where they used to be all held in person. We used to have weekly lunches together as a team, but we don't do that anymore. Not quite yet. We actually got to do it one time in July when the before the Delta variant hit um, and the rates were incredibly low. I think there were no patients in our hospital with COVID for the first time since the pandemic started and restrictions really eased up and we had a, a lunch together. And by the next week, already the Delta had hit. There were already patients in the hospital and things changed. So we were back, back in our, we were always wearing masks in the hospital, but we were even masked as a, when we were meeting as a team. So that's the biggest difference that you will see now as far as what has remained. And, the, you know, the challenge there is that so much communication that happens between human beings is just your facial expressions, right? It's a lot of nonverbal communication, and you lose that. You get to see somebody's eyes, but you don't see their mouth. You don't know if they're smiling or frowning. It does make communication harder. And in this really weird way, the video communication at least allows you to communicate more 
directly with someone because you can see all their facial features. Um, the problem with, with video is that you can't really make eye contact with people because if you have several people on a screen, nobody knows if you're looking at them or not, whereas in person you can. So there are challenges to both kinds of communication. I think that's something that we notice because communicating with patients and communicating around really difficult issues is something that we do in palliative care. You know, we had a patient few years ago, this was before the pandemic, but she also had interstitial lung disease, which is that really serious scarring of the lungs. She was so sick that she was in our intensive care unit. And one morning on rounds, I said, you know, I think we need to go in there and just kind of ask her what's most important and what she hopes will happen. And uh, I remember some of the other doctors were like, oh, you know, she is so sick, you know, we think she's going to die. I mean, I don't, you know, why talk about hope? I mean, that just seems terrible to even ask her about it. But, you know, my in my experience, it's really important to talk about hope because it really helps um, understand what is meaningful and important to someone. And often those are things that we can help with. So we went into the room and I said, you know, Mary, when you look to the future, what do you hope will happen? And she said, well, I really hope to be at my daughter's wedding. So, wow, you know, that's actually really... That's really important. Tell us about that. She said, well, she's getting married in 10 months in the Napa Valley. And immediately, you know, I thought there's no way. I mean, I don't think she's going to be alive in 10 months. And I don't think she's going to get out of the ICU ever, let alone to get to a wedding in Napa. So we talked about that with Mary and with her daughter. And we said, you know, I, I mean, this sounds really important. And, the, and her daughter said, well, it's important to me, too. So I'm just going to get married right here. And sure enough, a few days later, Mary's daughter came to the ICU in this beautiful wedding gown and her fiance was in a tuxedo and they put a corsage on Mary's hospital gown. Our chaplain uh, on our team officiated at the wedding and there were family members and friends and nurses and respiratory therapists and doctors just crowding into the ICU room, not a dry eye in the entire ICU. And it was this really beautiful experience where Mary got to experience the thing that was really most important to her because we talked about it, you know, because we had the courage to really talk about what she hopes for and what's most important to her. And she got to experience the thing that was actually most important to her because we not only asked about it, but when she said, I want to see my daughter get married, I think a lot of times in that situation, people just say, oh, that's really important. Yeah, I really hope that happens too. And then she thinks that she's going to make it when we think she's not. And so it's really important to follow that up by saying, you know, I'm worried that that may not happen, right? Because if we give her false hope, it's like no hope at all because it's not realistic. And this way she actually got to experience it. It wasn't Napa Valley, but it was really beautiful and really meaningful. Um, and Mary died just, a, you know, about a week later and really got to have this meaningful experience. And so this ability and expertise to really raise these issues with patients is a really important part of the work that we do in palliative care. So how does the death of a patient impact you? And considering that it's it was COVID, right? So there was likely like a fair amount of patients who passed away more than normal. So how do you deal with a death of a patient? Yeah, it's really important to deal with it um, and to not ignore it because it's a really important event 
when someone dies and it's really meaningful. So as a team, every week we talk about the patients who die. Actually, every day, if someone died the night before, for example, we'll talk about it and we'll talk about the patient and what happened. And then every year we have a kind of a memorial service for our team. So last week we had our memorial service for our uh, outpatient team. In the last year, almost 100 patients that we cared for died. And so we read their names. Uh, We did a writing exercise where we wrote about them and what we remembered about them and what we learned from them. And then we shared that. And then we, um, our chaplain read a poem, uh, which was really beautiful. And so it's a ritual that we do to really remember people. And then every month when we meet as a team, so that's what we do annually, yearly. Um, Every month when we meet as a team, we read the names of people who died. We remember them. We talk about them and the circumstance of their life and their death. And then we take a stone small stone and we put it in a jar and at the end of the year we use those stones um, to plant uh, as the base for planting a plant and then we put and then we plant a plant and then that continues to grow and it's kind of an ongoing memory for us uh, of the patients that we took care of and it um, has something beautiful growing on the foundation of the people that we cared for. So it's really important to do that. And um, it's something that we do recognize as a, both a, kind of a hazard of our work is that a lot of people die, but also a really great privilege to be with people at that time. And look, it's a constant reminder that life is precious <laughs> and you should live it the way that's really important to you and you know, spend time with the people that matter and say the things that are important to say and um, do the things that are meaningful to you. Because as one of my patients once said, he said, you know, I have cancer and I may die, but, you know, you could cross the street and then get hit by a bus. So all of us have limited time. And I thought that is really true. Um, I think COVID only made that more real and more tangible as, you know, all of us, including people without serious illness, particularly early in the pandemic, um, all realized that, you know, if if we got COVID, we could die from it. And it really made that possibility that mortality possibility so much more real for everyone yeah so it sounds like palliative care is like something that really helps people kind of recognize that life has an end to it that death exists Mm -hmm. and it also provides way to like cope with it is the palliative care treatments or the policies of palliative care at ucsf is it globalized or at least nationalized in the U.S., or is it just specific to the hospital? Well, palliative care is available at um, not over 90% of all hospital, of all big hospitals in the United States. So if you look at hospitals with more than 300 beds, palliative care is available in over 90% of them. So palliative care is really widespread across the United States. You know, all hospitals will have their own kind of specific policies around things. The general approach to palliative care of treating symptoms like pain um, and nausea and shortness of breath, 
those are pretty, you know, those are pretty standard. You know, there is an evidence base for it. There's a science behind it. We always wish there was more science and we have more research going on all the time. And yet there is a really well-established uh, scientific basis for the work that we do. When it comes to sort of how we communicate with patients, there's training programs across the country. And again, studies that sort of demonstrate kind of better ways to talk with patients, better words to use, better systems for communication that really help people understand what's happening and understand their situation and make better decisions. So the practice is really based in the scientific evidence about how best to practice and how best to care for seriously ill people. And that would be the same, not only across the United States, really around the world. You know, there's palliative care available in nations all over the world. It's not universal yet, but there's a lot of really wonderful palliative care being delivered really around the world. So I'm also taking a sociology course one of, yeah, on health and illness specifically, actually. Mm-hmm. And one of the criticisms that has been raised about current medicine is that we kind of medicalize death too much as in like death is more and more being treated like some type of disease to be cured but like from a palliative care perspective like especially yours that's not the case right and that's right so it does raise the idea that like is it ever a good idea to end a person's life then if like there's just no more future for them, like after they've satisfied all their desires and everything like that. So um, say say more about that when you say to end somebody's life. What do you what do you what do you mean? So there has been talk about like medically assisted death. Yeah. But um, there's also talk about euthanasia. Well, normally that's more in terms of like animals, but. At the same time, it's like my grandfather, he was he was suffering for a long time in like a in a hospital back mm-hmm. in Vietnam. He also had Parkinson's for a while, so he mm-hmm. he couldn't really ever convey what he wanted to anyone mm-hmm. really. So yeah. like at that point, if we try to prolong his life, would it have been right to do so? Because whenever I look at him through the camera, sometimes it's like, he looks like he's suffering so much. Mm -hmm. Well, you raise a lot of important issues. I'm sorry to hear about your grandfather. Parkinson's disease is a difficult disease, particularly late in its disease. Um, We actually have done a, a, a lot of research of palliative care for people with Parkinson's disease. And some of our, our research that uh, I've done with colleagues around the country has shown that palliative care really is effective, not just for the person with Parkinson's disease, but for their caregivers as well. So there's a really important role for palliative care for people with Parkinson's disease. Um, and you're right, as the disease progresses, sometimes people are not able to communicate for a whole host of reasons. They're not able to really talk about their wishes. As you pointed out, you know, in palliative care, we do recognize that death is a part of life. Everybody dies. um, And it's not a failure. It is just what happens. And so the question is not whether you're going to die, but how and what is that experience going to be like? And how can we help you help it be as 
peaceful and comfortable and dignified as possible. And that's really what we're trying to do. And you're right, in a lot of medicine, there is a sense that, wow, we have these technologies, we can really help people, we can stave off death, and that's true. There's a lot that we can do to help people with serious illness, to live better and longer through the treatments that we have. Those are really, really important. And yet, despite it all, each of us is going to die. And we want that to be late, (laughs) and we want to live long, and we want to live well. But that's just, that's reality. You know, that's part of our existence is coming to grips with that reality, that as it is. And so in palliative care, we really think about, well, given that we know that that is true and everybody has their time, how do we take care of you in a way that really respects your wishes and helps you live as well as possible for as long as possible? You know, that's what I tell my patients. I'm like, our job is to help you live as well as possible for as long as possible. That's what I'd like. You know, medical aid in dying is a really um, interesting and important question that's becoming more widely available in the United States many, many states, including here in California. And there are patients who, in the face of their serious illness, decide that they've reached a quality of life that is no longer one that they want to continue, or that when they look to the future of where things are going for them, they really, really worry. Like, my quality of life now is not good at all, and it's just going to get worse. So why am I prolonging it? And they want they worry about what the future looks like for them and they want to avoid an uncertain and what seems to them perhaps undignified or uncomfortable future with their illness and choose then to end their lives, you know, at a kind of in a way in a time of their choosing. You know, this is a issue that has evolved over the last, you know, 20 plus years from where it first became legal in Oregon in the United States. And countries around the world address this in different ways. You know, the approach to these kinds of issues does vary tremendously around the world. And there are places where you don't even need necessarily a terminal illness to choose to end your life in the manner and timing that you want. That is not the case in the United States. It does require a six-month prognosis for people to avail themselves of medical aid in dying. And it's a controversial issue still within, within medicine. And even within palliative care, there are many of my colleagues who don't provide it, um, many colleagues who do, kind of a wide range of opinion about it. And yet for many patients, it is a great comfort for them to know that it is available. Yeah, I see. It is a difficult question. It does make medicine a lot more complex than just here is a disease and these are the steps that we're going to take to cure it. So I guess we're kind of coming to the end of our interview now. For any future doctors, would you have any advice for them regarding the field? Yeah, I would say palliative care is a great, great field. It's, uh, you know, for people who go into, who consider a career in medicine because they're drawn to the humanism of it and um, meaningful relationships with patients and really wanting to work closely with people and have intimate relationships with their patients and really make a difference and, and help people feel better and help their family members. It is really a tremendous field and I highly recommend it. We also practice as a team. I mentioned that earlier with social workers and nurses and chaplains and there's 
it's just um, it's one of the best parts of my job is working with the team that I get to work with. And the relationships we have with patients and family members is really deep and meaningful quickly because we talk about really real things that really, really matter to people. And that's and helping them make decisions and helping them get through what are really difficult times. So I think for anyone going into the field because they care about those things and they care about humanity and, and relationships with people, it's just, it's a great field. Yeah. And generally, do you ever feel like we could start integrating more palliative care, less palliative care, extending it to patients? Absolutely. A lot of our work now is, is, is thinking just about that, is how do we extend palliative care to people? So, you know, people with Parkinson's can live for 20 years or more with Parkinson's disease. People can have ALS for, for a decade. But over that time, they may very well benefit from palliative care. People with cancer, certain cancers now, people can live for 10, 20 years. Um, they may need ongoing treatment or recurrent treatment and have symptoms that persist even after their, their treatment is over. And so people can engage with palliative care over a very long time. So there really is no prognosis for people with serious illness to receive palliative care. And yeah, a lot of our work now is really trying to identify people who need palliative care. So right now we sort of depend on doctors referring the patients. And so a lot of our work is trying to figure out, well, who out there needs palliative care and how do we bring them in? In part because um, we want to overcome any biases in referral um, to make sure that all patients have access, regardless of you know race, ethnicity, language, insurance status, you know, all those things, ability to pay. We really feel so strongly that palliative care is really an essential service. And so how do we identify people in the population who have these palliative care needs? And then how do we bring, how do we connect them with palliative care services? How do we teach their doctors and nurses who are not palliative care experts to do some of the basics of palliative care, which is really, really important so that they can have some of these conversations, they can treat symptoms as well. So to really extend the reach of palliative care. And then honestly, how do we transform the healthcare system? You know, you asked that question early on. How do we transform the healthcare system so wherever you are, whatever you're being treated for, there's a focus on you as a whole person and not just as an illness. There's a focus on you and your family members. There's not just like, hey, here's a treatment, but hey, will this treatment really help you? And how does this fit into the rest of your life and the things that are important to you? And to really infuse the entire healthcare system with that kind of approach to really see people not as a collection of diseases, but as human beings who are um, trying to live their best life. Yeah. Palliative skater sounds really cool. It's like it's cool. you're the connector of like the social world and the medical world. And I just, that's super cool. Yeah. Okay. Well, I... that was it. Okay. The interview.